0: Hi there. You're listening to the Toxic Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Miss Strahl, bringing you this week's episode. Toxic at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode of this podcast is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. Bishop Barron is the founder of Word on Fire Catholic Ministries, and auxiliary bishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, and is a number one Amazon best-selling author, with numerous books, essays, and articles on theology and the spiritual life, in addition to his regular YouTube videos, which you can find at youtube.com wordonfirevideo. He discusses how our minds relentlessly seek, and how religion at its best never shuts down the mind, but opens it up. And now, here's Bishop Robert Barron, Religion and the Opening Up of the Mind.
1: Thank you guys very much. Thanks. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for that nice uh, introduction. And it really is uh, a delight to be here at I mean, you all know this, one of the most significant cultural centers really in the world. I've been very warmly received, so thanks for the invitation. Thanks for the, uh, the great hospitality. Um, I want to talk about religion and the opening up of the mind. Because very often religion sort of gets a, a bad uh, rap. It's superstitious, it's sub-rational, it's opposed to the mind. I'm going to argue au contraire. <laughs> just the contrary that religion authentically construed is meant to open up the mind and the will okay that's my my goal today um you know a term that now is common parlance but didn't exist when i was a young man is uh, search engine and here we are at the headquarters of the most popular and powerful search engine uh, on the planet. At our fingertips now, quite literally, is almost all the knowledge, all the wisdom information that the human race has accumulated. And we can just press a button, and up it comes. Um, Just recently, I was with an older friend of mine, and he was mentioning the 1937 World Series. And he was convinced that game three ended with a certain score, but wasn't sure what it was. I said, well, let's check Mr. Google. So, of course, we did. And up came the information about game three of the 1937 World Series. Not that long ago, I was with someone else, and we were wondering about a passage in the Divine Comedy of Dante. And, of course, we were able to find it very quickly. Um, Here's one now. There's maybe a few in the room old enough to remember the show F Troop. Remember that? From the 60s. Well, I got a few of you. I was with some friends from my, you know, era, and we were arguing about the characters on F-Troop. I said, well, let's ask Mr. Google. So up came the characters on F Troop. So you know that, that we have really at this extraordinary civilizational moment, the capacity to access the wisdom of the race. Now, see, search engine, search engine triggers for me an awful lot of Resonances with religion. Now, How come? The mind, by an inner instinct, is restless. Even relentlessly so, right? The mind searches for truth. And it finds it, finds a particular truth, like the ones I just mentioned. But does the mind ever rest at that point? No, no, no. The minute we find some truth, usually 12 more questions emerge. Think of the way we all surf the web, right? We go looking for something, but it leads us somewhere else, then somewhere else, somewhere else again. And then we find all this so fascinating, we forget what we were originally looking for. The mind is restless, even relentlessly so. It never rests, or if it does, it's the way a a climber might rest on the side of the mountain just to catch his breath before heading back up, right? It searches, it searches. The more it knows, the more it wants to know. My great intellectual hero is St. Thomas Aquinas. And he spoke in the 13th century of the intellectus agens. That's his Latin. And usually it's transliterated into English as the agent intellect, which sounds rather uh, you know, cold. See, agens in Latin is a participle. Doing, making, <laughs> moving. Intellectus agens is the restless, searching mind. Now, where is it going, the intellectus agens? What's it looking for? Here I love the, uh, the one-liner from the great uh, Jesuit philosopher Bernard Lonergan. Lonergan says it's very simple. The mind wants to know everything about everything. Now, Google, this should be familiar to you, right? But that's the natural dynamism of the mind, not to know just this particular truth or that not just the conglomeration of all particular truths. The mind wants to know everything about everything. It wants not just particular truths. It wants the truth itself. It wants the source of reality itself. That's how hungry the mind is. Another Lonergan line is, is there's an emptiness like the emptiness of a box. It's kind of a dumb emptiness, just waiting to be filled. But there's also the emptiness of the stomach. It's empty, but it knows what it wants. Right? The mind is empty at the beginning of, of life, but not like a box, more like a stomach. Intellectus agens, searching, searching, until it comes to its fulfillment only in knowing everything about everything, the very source of reality. Okay? True of the mind, equally true, of the will, the second great dynamic of the human spirit, the will. Now, the will seeks not the true, but the good. So right now, everyone in this room, we're all seeking the good in some way. So I'm seeking the good of of speaking to you. You're seeking, I hope you find it, uh, some good in, in my talk. You know, we talk about final causality. Aristotle made that distinction, right, between efficient causality, like a pushing cause, Think of all the physical sciences. The modern sciences are based upon efficient causality. Where do things come from? What brings them into being? But final causality, Aristotle thought was more important. That's the pulling cause, right? what, what attracts or lures things. Now, that's a talk for another day. We could, we could debate final causality in nature. But I think no one would, would disagree that final ca- causality obtains in our world That we human beings are drawn by the good. It it lures our wills. Okay, but remember the intellectus agens, the restless, seeking, never satisfied mind. Same is true of the will. Notice how any act of the will can be analyzed in a kind of Russian doll manner. Do you know what I mean? The one doll inside the other. That every particular act of the will, if we think about it, is situated in a broader and wider act of the will, which in turn is in a broader and wider, broader and wider, etc. Now what am I talking about? Think about getting out of bed in the morning, right? So it's an act of the will, unless you fell out of bed. But if you get out of bed in the normal way, it's an act of the will. You're seeking a good to start your day. But see, that good nests in a higher good. Why do you get out of bed? Well, I want to get to work. Okay, why do you want to get to work? Well, I need to make money. Well, why do you need to make money? Well, I I want to support myself and my family. Why do you want to support yourself and your family? Well, supporting my family leads to their flourishing. Well, why do you want that? Because my family flourishing makes me happy. And I want to be happy all the time and in an unconditioned way. Just as the mind won't rest until it knows everything about everything. So the will doesn't rest until it finds an unconditioned happiness. Now, I mean, analyze any act of the will that way. I send my car to the mechanic. Well, how come? So the car will will run better. Well, why do you want that? So I can get to work and now do that analysis. Or so I can get to my friends more easily. Well, why do you want that? Well, being with my friends is a great good that makes me happy. And I want to be happy all the time and in an unconditioned way. I go to a basketball game. This is kind of easier to analyze. Well, why do you want that? Well, because basketball is interesting and beautiful. And contemplating it makes me happy. And I want to be happy all the time and in an unconditioned way. See, the the will, if we analyze it sufficiently, is conditioned by a desire for beatitudo. I'm using this Latin term on purpose, because it was Thomas Aquinas' term. Happiness, beatus means happy in Latin. Beatitudo is the happiness I'm talking about which is not the happiness that comes from a particular act of the will. Like, hey, I went to you know, Bishop Barrett's talk. Yeah, it was okay. I, I liked it. You know, it made me happy in a very limited way. Okay, I, I'll, be, I'll be happy if that's true. But then, see, analyze any act, including this one, and you'll eventually get to the desire at the ground of the will for beatitudo, unconditioned happiness. Now, here's an interesting thing, everybody. Prior to modernity, prior to the rise of the sciences, the principal question that preoccupied the minds of the best and brightest people in the West was the nature of beatitudo. See, what what is it? So we all want it. And and that's true, by the way, of, of of the religious believer, of the agnostic, the atheist. Everybody wants beatitudo. It's the first mover of the will. So what is it? And can I submit to you, there is no question more important than that. And and see, one of the tragedies, I think, of our time is so often we bracket that question. Because we're so preoccupied with the achievements of our sciences, and God bless them. I'm all in favor of them. Don't get me wrong. But we tend to bracket the question that prior to modernity, the best and brightest people thought was the most important. What is this beatitudo that all of us, at least implicitly, are seeking? okay and i want to give you a little bit now of um, thomas aquinas's analysis of this you can find it by the way in the very beginning of the second part of his great summa theologiae his summary of theology you know it's interesting many years ago there was a prominent a catholic cardinal who had a little quip that he often used he said good morality is like good art it begins with the drawing of a line now it's it's a clever line but i think actually it's wrong because that's not the way Aquinas starts. The drawing of a line, like a law. I, I, I'm in favor of it. Don't get me wrong. We, we have to get to drawing some drawing of lines. But Aquinas begins not with the law. That happens in question 90, 9 zero. Question 1, question 1. And here he's just like all his pre-modern uh, uh, colleagues. Question 1, what is beatitudo? What is the happiness? that is luring our wills. Okay, So he does a kind of uh, process of elimination. He looks at four classical candidates, what great people have said and thought about the nature of beatitudo. So first he says, some people claim that wealth is beatitudo. To be rich sufficiently, to be sufficiently wealthy, that's the beatitudo that finally I'm seeking. Now, is that a, a legitimate position? Well, in a way, I mean, I get it. Lots of very smart people have, have said that. And may I submit, in our culture especially, <laughs> you can find an awful lot of people, I think, that hold to that. If I just have enough you know, uh, money in the bank, I have a big enough house, uh, nice enough cars, I have a, a commodious uh, life. I'll be happy. And that's, in fact, what I'm always implicitly desiring in all my acts of the will. True? Aquinas says, no. Wealth is a good, but it can't be the unconditioned good. How come? Well, he says, look, what does wealth mean? He says wealth in the natural sense means, and let me give this a quote here that makes it sound kind of uh, contemporary. He says, Wealth serves as a remedy for our natural wants, such as food, drink, clothing, cars, dwellings, and such like. That's from the 13th century, but it sounds like today, doesn't it? I mean, what does wealth give me? It's a remedy for natural wants. So these natural wants, like, I'm I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. And so wealth gives me food, drink, clothing, cars, dwellings, and such like. Goods? Yeah, but they can't be the ultimate good. Why? Why? Because Thomas says those things are the condition for the possibility of much higher goods. And think about it for a second. Once you've discovered, you've found enough food and drink, you've got a a shelter, you're, you're living in a sort of comfortable, commodious way, then you can aspire to philosophy and science and friendship and conversation. These higher goods. Wealth is a proximate good. It can't be, therefore, the ultimate good. So that can't be beatitudo, what we're all implicitly seeking. Okay, others have said beatitudo, happiness, consists in honors. Now think about it for a second. How many societies, both the, I mean, East and West, around the world, trans historically, how many societies are predicated upon um, uh, honor and shame, right? That the worst thing you can experience is to be shamed. And therefore, concomitantly, the best thing is to be honored. And I know lots of people whose lives are pretty much centered around the quest for honor. To be thought highly of. To be given titles and prerogatives. right? To be held up. Okay, is honor, though, beatitudo? And Aquinas says, no, it can't be. Why? Because honor, he says, is like a flag that we put on something good, noble, and virtuous. And So you notice someone who's got great ability, or they're, or they're uh, leading a virtuous life, and you want to put a flag on that to say, hey, everybody, look at that. That's worth emulating. That's honor. So think of titles, and positions, and prerogatives, and so on, signs of respect. They are flags of virtue or nobility. Therefore, they're derivative. (laughs) They're secondary. What matters much more than honor are the things that are being honored, namely your virtue, nobility, and so on. Therefore, honor, good thing, sure. But it can't be be beatitudo. It can't be the happiness that deep down we're all seeking. Okay? Oh, but here's another, another indication that honor can't be the ultimate good. Notice Aquinas says, who in your society is being honored the most? Are they the very best people? (laughs) The question answers itself, doesn't it? (laughs) Age to age. Think of the people who get the most attention, the most adulation. Are they, in fact, the best? Again, it answers itself. Others have said, you know what beatitudo is? It's power. And again, this has a lot of uh, weight across the ages. Lots of impressive, important people have argued for this. And deep down, there are a lot of people, age after age, who do indeed seek power as their ultimate good. You know, uh, go back to the Tolkien movies and the great Tolkien novels. What's the ring but a ring of power, right? Right? What are they seeking? What's everybody drawn to? Talk about final causality, right? The minute the ring gets near anybody, what's well, the ring of power? It is indeed something that we all seek. I think in our culture too, I would correlate power and freedom very strongly. You know, for Americans or many Westerners, what's the supreme value? But freedom. What's freedom but but power, right? Don't tread on me. Don't get in my way. Let me do what I want to do. Go where I want to go. Accomplish what I want to accomplish. And isn't it true that we hate it when people take away our freedom? I do. I hate it. Whether that's in a physical sense, a psychological sense, a spiritual sense. And so, okay, power does seem to be something very alluring. Notice, too, please. So keep Tolkien in mind, but also keep in mind, In the Gospels, the great story of the temptation of Jesus, what's the highest temptation, the third temptation? The devil takes him to a high place and shows him what all the kingdoms of the world in one glance, and all these I will give you if you but bow down and worship me. It's a temptation to power, isn't it? So it is alluring, but is it beatitudo? Aquinas says, no, it can't be. Why? Very simple reason. Power, he says, is a source of activity that allows us to attain an end. But beatitudo is an end. You see what he means? Be- whatever this beatitudo is, it's something that I'm going for, that I want. It's a good that's out there. Power is terrific as a means of attaining ends. Right? You give me the power to do this, the power to do that, the power to attain. But power in itself is not what you want. It's the good that power gives you access to, right? Therefore, power can't in itself be beatitudo. Okay, so it's not wealth, not honor, not power. Here's the fourth grade candidate. And I think everybody, from a spiritual standpoint, this is a really helpful analysis. Because all of us, we're all sinners in this room, I trust. Um, <laughs> We're all beguiled by these things in some way. We all tend to mistake these for beatitudo. So the fourth one, Thomas says, is pleasure. Now, this is a very old philosophical position. It's called hedonism. And don't make fun of hedonism as just like, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Hedonism is a very noble uh, classical position that says what we all seek deep down is pleasure. Now, it could be pleasure in food and drink and so on. But also pleasure in the arts, pleasure in sports, pleasure in, in knowledge, etc. So it can be a more refined form of hedonism. But then pleasure, it seems, is this ultimate good. It seems to be beatitudo. Yeah, it might seem that way, says Aquinas, but it can't be. How come? Because pleasure, he says, is a side effect of something much more fundamental. So when I achieve some physical well-being, I I experience pleasure as a a happy side effect. But it's the health of the body that's really substantive. Or when I make some great spiritual, intellectual, cultural attainment, I might feel a rush of pleasure accompanying that. But the pleasure is just derivative, isn't it, from the, the substantive accomplishment? So pleasure can't be it. Okay. so where are we now? We all want beatitudo. Everyone in this room, again, this is religious, non-religious, believer, atheist. Everybody wants beatitudo. Otherwise, you would not get out of bed in the morning. So what is it? What is it? It's not wealth. It's not power. It's not pleasure. It's not honor. Thomas says, the desire for happiness, for beatitudo, is an infinite desire. Remember, I said, we want to be happy all the time and in an unconditioned way, don't we? I don't want to settle for some proximate good, some limited, mitigated good. I want goodness itself. And therefore, he concludes, Beatitudo cannot be any good in this world of wealth, pleasure, power, honor, anything else. None of that can satisfy this longing of the soul and of the heart, this questing, this searching for Beatitudo. It is only in God. Listen to his quote. Hence it's evident that nothing can lull a person's will save the universal good. And this is to be found not in any creature, but in God alone. Now, can I submit to you, everybody, this is is the the moral wisdom of the great biblical tradition. And the roots of this go way back into the scriptures themselves. But this is the way Aquinas analyzes it philosophically. What we want cannot be met by anything in this world. Just as what the mind wants see does not correspond to any particular bit of knowledge within the world. The mind wants to know unconditioned truth. The will wants the unconditioned good. That hunger is at the source of religion, it seems to me. That opening up of the questing mind and heart is what it's all about. Okay. Now, can I turn from that little philosophical analysis to the Bible? And I want to share with you a story that I've always loved. And I I think it speaks precisely to this point. It's a story from the first book of Kings in the Old Testament. It's a story dealing with Elijah and the priests of Baal. Now as I I tell the story, you might remember it. So during this period, Israel had gone over to false worship. So King Ahab... Remember, so Melville calls his, you know, Captain Ahab. (laughs) And poor Captain Ahab, because we hear in the Bible that Ahab is worse than all the kings of Israel combined. And, And knowing the rogues gallery of the kings of Israel, that's saying a mouthful, right? So Ahab is a really bad guy. More to it, his wife, Jezebel, has now drawn him into the worship of false gods. So Elijah, the prophet, rises up. We know nothing about him except he's from the little town of Tishba. Now talk to specialist historians of the ancient world, they don't know where Tishba was. So we know nothing about Elijah. He suddenly appears on the scene and he challenges Ahab. He says, you know the drought we're having here in this country? It's because of the false worship. Very interesting thing now in the Bible. Never read the punishments of God as somehow arbitrary. Uh, God's is having a bad day and so he's imposing this arbitrary no no it's spiritual physics the garden go back to the beginning what's the garden symbolic of but flourishing the flourishing that God wants for his people Adam and Eve expelled from the garden not capriciously arbitrarily but as spiritual physics when we fall away from God we tend to fall into lifelessness that's the point And so the drought now that Elijah points out is a function of false worship. And let me just, I'm going to dwell on that for a second. Keep Aquinas in mind and beatitudo and the seeking of the good, right? And keep in mind those substitutes for beatitudo, wealth, pleasure, honor, power. The very beginning of the book of Genesis, we hear about God making the heavens and the earth, right? And everything's coming forth in this orderly manner, Mind you, please, not science, high poetry this is, right? So as things come forth in this orderly way, you know, let there be light and there was light, let the earth come forth, it came forth, let the the earth, you know, team with animals and so on and so forth. The stars and the planets all come forth in this orderly procession from God. Two basic moves are being made here symbolically. First of all, the author is dethroning... All these false claimants to divinity. Think for a second of, you know, the planets and the moon and the stars, mountains, animals, the river, etc. What do they all have in common? They were all, at one point or another, worshipped in the ancient world. These are all gods worthy of worship. The author of Genesis is saying, no, 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 no. These are all creatures of God, not God. Don't worship them. Are they good? Yes. And the conglomeration, indeed, is very good. But they're not God. Don't worship them. Now, here's the second point he's making. And here the the Catholics will understand what I'm talking about. As these things come forth in an orderly manner, one after the other, in a stately procession, what does that remind you of? It, It should remind you a bit of the Mass and of the way The ministers of the Mass process in. Well, and you know, the Mass, of course, the roots go way back into the the Jewish temple rituals and so on, right? There's the idea. Nothing in the world is God. Don't worship them. But everything in the world is meant to turn to God in right praise. That's the purpose of creation, is to turn to God in right praise. And who comes at the end of this procession? Well, there's the human beings, right? Adam and Eve. Who comes at the end of a liturgical procession but the priest or the bishop, the one who's going to lead the praise. Ah, that's the idea. Dethrone all false claimants to divinity. Nothing in the world is God. Don't worship those things, but rather let all those things be part of a great chorus of praise led by human beings who can give voice to the praise of of creation. Does that make sense? That's the biblical vision. That's the biblical vision. Write, praise. I love this connection. The, you know, the word adoration from two Latin words were ad oratio, ad ora. Ora means mouth, right? Ad ora is mouth to mouth. <laughs> to adore God is to be mouth to mouth with God. It means lined up, aligned, see, under the power of God. In that stance, we find who we are. Another little etymology thing: worship, right? Our word "worship" go back now to like Chaucerian times, an older English form is "worthship." What's of highest worth? That's what you worship. Now, again, listen to me, everybody: this is believer, non-believer, everybody. This is uh, this is religious person, atheist. Everybody in this room worships something. <laughs> There's something of highest worth to you. Remember Beatitudo. Everyone's seeking happiness. Everyone. There's no way around that. What is it? What is it? And see, the, the author of Genesis is saying don't let anything in the world be the object of your worship, but God alone. Wealth, pleasure, honor, power, any creaturely thing, that will not lead you to the beatitudo that you want, but only the right praise of God. And can I submit to you, I think that's lesson one of the Bible. It's what the Bible's about, from Genesis to Revelation. It's about right praise. And don't interpret that in a fussy way, but rather in this deep sort of metaphysical way. Right praise means the right ordering of one's life, worshiping God alone. When you do that, where do you live? In a garden. That means you live in in a place of life. When you stop worshiping God alone, welcome to the desert. That's the biblical symbolism. Okay. So with all that in mind, go back now to Elijah and, and King Ahab. He says, the trouble here, Ahab, is You're worshiping false gods. That's always the problem. Right? Fellow sinners. Right? That's always the problem. I'm worshiping something other than God. Well, is Ahab happy about this? No, no, no. (laughs) He says, get lost, you troubler of Israel. And Elijah, again, all we know about him is his name. But you know what his name means? It tells you everything. Eliyahu in Hebrew, Elijah. Eliyahu means Yahweh is my God. See, his whole being is summed up in that. I don't worship anyth- anybody but Yahweh. Yahweh is my God, Eliyahu. And so he prophetically challenges Ahab. And here's what he says. He said, look, you get all the priests and prophets of Baal, so the, the gods that they were worshiping, and let's all go to Mount Carmel, and I'm going to go up there, and let's have, a, let's have a challenge. And so the 450 priests of Baal go up Mount Carmel, and then the one Elijah. Now, in that, there's an important lesson, too. The avatars of the false gods are always thick on the ground. True then? uh Uh-huh. True today? Yes. Wealth, pleasure, honor, power, by the way. The avatars of those things, are they everywhere? Uh Uh-huh. They're always thick on the ground. The representative of God tend to be a much smaller number. So the one Elijah against the 450 priests of Baal. And then, of course, that wonderful story unfolds, which actually is quite funny. And the friends of mine who know Hebrew really well—I don't know it that well—will uh, tell me that the humor really comes out in the in the Hebrew. Um, let me read to you some of those uh, some of the lines. So the the priests of Baal set up the altars, right, and then they begin to supplicate and to beg and to pray that their gods will come and send fire to consume the sacrifice, because that was the challenge, right? You call on your gods and see what happens and I'll call on mine and we'll see which one responds. right? So they begin to, um, to beg and so on. And uh, Elijah around midday begins to mock them because they know fire is coming to answer their, he mocks them. Cry louder, Baal is a god, but you know, he may be detained in talk or maybe he's lodging abroad or maybe he's on a journey or maybe he's fallen asleep and needs awakening. So he's mocking the the priests of Baal. And now they're kind of stung by this. And so then they take out swords, we hear, and they they slash themselves till they bleed. That was a sign of greater supplication, right? And still they beg, and still they cajole. And still no fire falls. Then Elijah comes forward to his altar. He says, Hear me, O Lord, hear me. Prove to all the people that Thou art the Lord God and art calling their hearts back to Thee. And with that, we hear the fire comes down, consumes the sacrifice. Elijah wins. Okay, but here's what I want you all to see, please. That this is not just a, you know, my God's bigger than your God. It's not just kind of a chauvinistic story. Uh, This is making the same point that Thomas Aquinas was making, seems to me. Look, everybody's got a hungry heart, right? Bruce Springsteen taught us that. (laughs) saying the same thing. Everyone's got a hungry heart. Everybody wants beatitudo. So what do we do? We worship something. Everybody does it. Paul Tillich, the Protestant theologian, said that all you need to know about a person, you can learn by asking one question. What do you worship? It's dead right, it seems to me. Because your life will be organized around what you take to be the highest value. So, think of the priests of Baal now. Think, if you want, of four altars. Erected to wealth, pleasure, power, honor. What do most of us sinners do most of the time? Is we hop around one or more of those altars. We worship one or more of these things. I mean, everyone can tell the story, right? I know lots of young people that got very early on the train toward wealth. And they worshipped it. They devoted themselves to it. They hopped around the altar. Did it satisfy them? No, it can't. And we just saw why. See, because the hunger is infinite. And no amount of wealth is going to satisfy that. So what happens then? You get addicted. You see why? I'm searching for wealth. And I got it. I got my first million by 30 or whatever it is, you know. And I got a little buzz from that, as you, you do, but then the buzz wears off. It has to, because you're not you're not built for that. And when the buzz wears off, oh, I better go back to that altar. I better keep worshipping there. I better keep hopping around that altar. And I get my first 10 million by 40 or whatever goal it was you had. And and the buzz comes back. But what will any addict tell you? We're all addicts in this room, by the way, because we're all sinners. What will any addict tell you? The buzz will wear off faster, right? And so now I panic. Remember the slashing themselves with the knives till they're bleeding. That we will harm ourselves in the process of hopping around this altar. Power, same thing, same dynamic. Talk to people who very early on got hooked on power. That's what will make me happy. So I'm going to worship at that altar. Beatitude, oh man, it's power. That's what I want. And I get power, whatever it was I'm going for by the age of 30. you know. And I get a buzz from it, but it wears off. It has to. So I get more and more, and I hop, and I cajole. And then before I know it, I'm addicted to such a degree that I'm harming myself in the process. Same with honors. Talk to anybody who's on that train. I never get enough attention. They don't appreciate me. Why did he get that job? Why do I not have the honors I deserve? I've been worshipping at that altar all my life, people will say. It's not designed to satisfy you, because beatitudo is not found there. What does Elijah represent? Again, don't think of it so much you know, kind of chauvinistically and nationalistically. What does Elijah represent? But the worshipping, the worshipping of the true God, the infinite truth, the infinite goodness of God, when you order your life that way, listen now, the fire will fall. (laughs) That's the point. Then the fire will fall because now you've hooked your infinite desire onto the properly infinite object. And the fire will fall and consume the sacrifice of your life and make it radiant and and bring it to a a heightened fulfillment. There's the Bible. That's the lesson the Bible has for us, which is as relevant in 2018 as it ever was. Because I can introduce you. You all know this. You do the same thing. Introduce you to dozens and dozens of people that I know who are hopping around these four altars. right? It's only true worship that will give me satisfaction. Okay, I'm going to make one more little step and then we'll bring it to a close. Here's where it gets, I think, really interesting. So, so, God alone will satisfy the deepest hunger of my heart. Okay, got that. I've got to get God in me, right, to satisfy my desire for beatitudo. But who is God? In the biblical reading, God is love. right? St. John tells us that. And that's that's a distinctively Christian idea because it's not that God simply loves or that God has the attribute of love. It's what God is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, by the way. Lover, beloved, and shared love. That's who God is, is love. So here's the paradox. Only in God is my soul at rest. Only when I have God in me do I have beatitudo. But God is love. Therefore, only when I give away what God gives me do I have the beatitudo that I seek. Love is willing the good of the other. Love is giving away. And so, as the divine life comes into me, what do I do with it? Don't hang on to it. Now reread the prodigal son, if you want the physics there. Right, Father, give me my share coming to me. Give me, 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 me. Give it to me so I can have it. What happens to him? It Fritters away. Not arbitrary punishment. That's spiritual physics. You try to hang on to it, you'll lose it. But when you give away the divine life that's flowing into you, now it increases in you 30, 60, and 100-fold. Right? You get the love that God is in you by giving it away. You see why this Christian thing is so hard to get? Because it's so counterintuitive. Fellow sinners in this room, what's our hang up? Look, I'm unhappy. We all are, by the way. I don't mean psychologically depressed. I mean we're all unhappy. We're all, we're all unsatisfied in this room. So I know, I know. I'm missing something. That's it. I'm missing requisite wealth, pleasure, power, or honor. Right? That's our instinct. i got to get more of that. i got to fill myself up. That's never the answer. That's never the answer. In fact, that's counter-indicated. That will lead to addiction and unhappiness. Rather, contrive a way to give your life away. And you'll find the beatitudo that you're actually seeking. See, I'm saying about the questing mind and the searching heart when they open up to the infinite source of love that's when they find the beatitudo they seek so how about I'll just give uh, st augustine the last word um, if you go back to the great confessions of st augustine one of the you know masterworks of the of the western world page 1 you'll find this little pithy statement of christian anthropology lord you've made us for yourself therefore our heart is restless until it rests in thee. There's no better statement of what I've been trying to say all this talk. Lord, you've made us for yourself. That's the infinite hunger. We're not like like a dog satisfies its its basic needs and goes blissfully to sleep, utterly happy. Terrific. That's what a dog's designed for. But we're not designed that way. Lord, you made us for yourself. We've got an infinite longing. Therefore, this is beautiful in Augustine, therefore, our heart, he says, he doesn't say, cordia, our hearts, he says core nostrum. See, what he means is, we've all got this in common. This links everybody together. Cor nostrum, our heart, is restless until it rests in thee. And that means, conformed unto love. That's Beatitudo. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening.
2: Thank you, Bishop Barry.
1: Good, please.
2: Uh, so, we're going to have Q&A right now. So, um, Davo is over there. He's going to run around with a mic if there's any live questions. And I will read out some questions from the Dory. So, let's start with one from the Dory. Um, we have John Nolan in Mountain View asking When scientists and atheists talk about religion, they seem to be stuck rehashing debates of previous centuries evolution, age of the earth, heliocentrism. What can be done to convince science-minded skeptics that religious belief systems have something valuable to offer in the 21st century?
1: Yeah, good. It's a question I, I wrestle with all the time. Um, first of all, all the things they've raised there, from my perspective as a, as a Catholic, are non-issues. So uh, like how, how old is the Earth? Don't ask me. Ask a scientist. Uh, how, did, how did biological things develop? Don't ask me. Ask an evolutionary biologist. Those are scientific questions, properly so. The Bible is not science. The last book of the Bible is written around the year 100 AD. The first scientific texts are in the, let's say, 16th century. The Bible is not science. It simply isn't. It's spirituality and theology, making very profound observations that are truthful about the nature of reality, but not in a scientific mode. So first of all, to give science its total due, that we're not in a conflictual relationship. But then the second move is this, to overcome our terrible tendency in our culture towards scientism. And scientism is the reduction of all knowledge to the scientific form of knowledge. right? So what the scientific method can give us, I love the scientific method. And look around us, I mean, what it's produced. God bless it. But we shouldn't reduce all forms of knowledge to what can be delivered by the scientific method. Get out of Plato's cave, if you want to go back to the, to the Republic of Plato get out of the realm of simply looking at shadows on the wall and come to much higher levels of reality, accessed, I would argue, through metaphysics and through philosophy. And so there, I would give science its total due, right? And we're not in a conflictual game with the sciences, but also not to allow the sciences to draw everything into themselves. Um, so that's a, that's a quick answer to a, to a subtle um, set of questions there. Please.
2: If anyone has a question, just raise your hand. Please. Uh,
1: So, Beatitudo and the way you describe it with its um, necessary longing and desire and journeying towards it, Eastern ideas like the Four Noble Truths say that this is, in fact, something that we can move past, that it's not completely universal, and that moving past this desire and this longing is, in fact, a viable path towards enlightenment. Is there a way to resolve those Eastern ideas with what you said today, or is that a fundamental difference? Yeah, it's a good question. Of course it would take us, you know, a year to search it out completely, but I think that that's right, there's a key difference. Because it's the it's the quieting of desire, you know, nirvana, it's the blowing out of the candle of desire that is the goal of the Buddhist tradition. And desire in a way is the problem, you know, born of ego and so on. And so, you know, dependent co origination and through uh, intense meditation, one finds that point of putting out desire. Where the Christian thing, and Augustine is, is uh, typical here, is not putting out desire, but awakening and, des- and directing desire appropriately. Um, now, I think we can play, as Thomas Merton did, the true self, false self uh, game. And that's a, that's a good way, I think, to dialogue with, with Buddhism. Is there a false self that's full of all kinds of weird and errant desires? Yeah, and that should be put to death. Blow that out if you want. Blow out the candle of that kind of desire. But I would say, as a Christian, there's not just that. There's also a properly directed desire, uh, an awakened and heightened desire. Um, But you're on to, I think, a very fundamental point of demarcation. But I think true self, false self might give us a Christian analogy to the blowing out of, of errant desire. But we wouldn't go so far as to say that desire, qua desire, is the problem. It's, it's um, you know, uh, de Lubac talks about this the Claudication mysterieuse, this weird um, uh, kind of crippling of desire. That's the problem. But that's it's a great question. It's the point of demarcation, I think. Please, go ahead.
2: Uh. We have another question on the Dory um, from Mike Ryle in Mountain View. With the growth of technology and the development of a globalized community, what's the most important thing that we can do as a group of people dedicated to the advancement of technology to ensure that our ethical and moral growth as global population doesn't fall behind our technological growth?
1: That's a really good question. It's terrific. And I'm, I'm glad it's raised. So you understand the dynamic there, that we get so enthusiastic about our technological advances. And again, God bless them. They're wonderful. You know? But they must always be properly haunted by the moral question. And the moral question is the question of love, finally. I will speak as a Christian. To love is to will the good of the other, right? Not my good through you, but your good. I want what's good for you. That's love. And love must always um, dominate. Love must always be the primary consideration. And so as our technology advances, is it in service of love? You know, St. Augustine said, love God and do what you want. <laughs> you know, his point there was, as long as love is, is thoroughly dominant in your life, then, then the rest will take care of itself. So then your technological life will find its proper place. Um, so that's terrific. I'm glad that ethical, spiritual question is raised, or else our technology will destroy us. Because, see, that's the Look at wealth, pleasure, outer power. They'll turn on us. See, if we don't know how to manage them spiritually, they'll manage us. Again, sound familiar? Every sinner in this room, including me, we know what that's about. They start managing us, you know. But we need to have the sovereignty of love And then these things find their proper place. That's good. Please, go ahead, please.
0: Hi, um, I think you might have already partially answered my question, but um, you know, the, during the course of your your talk, it sounds as if okay, there is the created world and uh, ways to you know basically worship or love those things, and then there's God. And is there only is there a way to love God? I mean, there are so many of us; we're all so different. Is there a one way, or is there is there you know how, how do we find our way to to love God? Is there are there seven? castles that we should be aware of or or are we so different that we have to make our own way?
1: No, it's good. I mean, you're talking there about the spiritual tradition and, and you're making reference actually to Teresa of Avila and so on, the interior castle. And there are different paths that spiritual masters have laid out. Uh, and so there, we can find some of those general categories. Uh, everyone is different. Everyone's got a unique personality. Everyone falls in love with God uh, differently. Um, you know, I'll go back to St. John of the Cross, who's one of the, the great masters, where John said, don't use the image of climbing the holy mountain, which a lot of us will use. Like, you know, God's up there. and I got to find my way to get to him. But rather, God wants nothing more than to move into your life in a saving way, right? In a life-giving way. So the idea, John of the Cross, is to clear the ground. So the helicopter can land. <laughs> so don't think of I got to get up that mountain, and, and there's God distantly out there and looking judgmentally at me as I strive to get up the mountain. Rather, no, God's like it, a helicopter who wants to land in my heart, but there are obstacles in the way. There's there's stuff in the way, and I would say you know there's fo- forms of false worship in the way. Clear those out so the helicopter can land. So it's like have the conference that you no know, God wants in my heart, that's all he wants. You know? And if I just get out of the way enough, it'll happen. <laughs> you know? Now, that's, everyone's got their own hang-ups and problems that they have to deal with, but I think that's a basic uh, strategy. Please, is there, Melissa, go ahead. So you you? I
2: think we'll just do one more question from the Dory and one more live question, and okay. then we'll call it. So um, Eloisa Wolf from Mexico is asking, how do you see our role as Catholic employees at Google?
1: Well, she know better than I. She's an employee. Uh, (laughs) You know, first of all, this. you be a person of love. Whatever you find yourself. I I go with the little flower, Therese of Lisieux, who's her so-called little way. Don't read that um, as something kind of twee and sentimental. The little way means in any situation, find the opportunity for love. And love, again, is not a sentiment. It means willing the good of the other. So wherever you are, in whatever condition you're sick, you're in prison, you're at work, you're wherever you are, what's the path of love? Find it and walk it. So that's what I'd say to Catholics at Google: is walk the path of love as fully as you can. But then, you know, if you want to press the thing, um, always be open, as we hear in First Peter, to give a reason for the hope that's in you. So if someone is curious about your faith, uh, your Catholicism, be ready. To provide answers. Um, We're going through kind of a golden age right now of apologetics. I think it's because of the new atheism. I think it awakened a lot of religious people to, um, you know, we got to defend ourselves here and make the case to a skeptical public. So there's a lot of good material out there. Learn it. So that when people approach you, maybe, curiously, um, have something to say to them. So those two things. Love first and then be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. Please. um,
0: Would you mind sharing with us one way in which you've Personally, experienced God in your life.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, first and foremost, every day when I say Mass, I mean it's the most powerful. Um, but I'll tell you, when I was um, fourteen, it was um, hearing one of Thomas Aquinas' arguments for God's existence. So I, I'm a, I was a Catholic kid going to Mass, but I wasn't all that interested in religion. And it was I was a freshman in high school, and I see I see Dominican in the back of the room. A um, Dominican friar in our religion class laid out for us one of Thomas' arguments. And honestly, I, I never thought you could think about religion seriously. To me, it was just like, yeah, I go to Mass on Sunday, but I never thought about it until that moment. I thought, wow, that's a very intriguing uh, presentation. And it led me on this quest that I'm still on. And That's quite true. That was years ago. Um, but I've never left that path and that's where I really say God as I look at it now in a decisive way kind of entered my life and set me on a path that that I'm still on standing before you today good God bless you all, thank you very much for coming thank you
0: If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash to leave your comments. To discover more thought-provoking content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle at talks at Google. Talk soon.